Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, parasitic alien egg crash hatches in Santa Monica and is immediately consumed by a horde of ravenous Priuses, proving they are good for something. Dribs and drabs, solids and blends, plus we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. All right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we talk to the editor and authors in a new collection called Give Me Liberty Con. This is a cool and special little anthology Bain has put out and has stories by the likes of David Weber, David Drake, Larry Correa, Timothy Zahn, and many more. All the stories are done in commemoration of the founder of that sweet old-fashioned science fiction convention in Chattanooga that has grown dear to many a Bain author and reader's heart. It is called LibertyCon, and the founder is the late Richard T. Bolgio, known to all as Uncle Timmy. We talk with Christopher Woods, Jody Lynn Nye, Les Johnson, and David B. Coe about their stories in the anthology and the legacy and enduring influence of Uncle Timmy and the great Liberty Con. Plus, we continue the complete audiobook serialization of David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Now here's the news. Can't get to the bookstore to see your favorite author? Bain Books will bring your favorite author to you. We at Bain are proud to announce the beginning of a weekly author reading series to be conducted at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time every Friday. The Bain Friday Night Live Reading Series will be hosted by Bain editor Christopher Rocchio via Zoom and Facebook Live. Our authors will read from new and upcoming releases and take questions from the audience afterwards. Coming up in the readings are... On July 1st, Larry Correa and Casey Ezel, who will be reading from their great anthology, Noir Fatal. On July 8th, Catherine Asaro will be along, and she'll read from The Vanished Seas. And then on July 15th, we'll have some readings from this great little triptych uh, novel called Battle Luna. And that will include Michael Z. Williamson, Casey Ezel and um, possibly Travis Taylor. On July 22nd, D.J. Butler will be reading from his excellent sort of end-of-time Gene Wolfe, uh, Jack Vance, uh, Dying Earth sort of book, In the Palace of Shadow and Joy. And on July 29th, Charles E. Gannon will read from his book set in John Ringo's Black Tide Rising series, At the End of the World. These are a lot of fun, and the authors are taking a few questions from the online audience during the reading. So check the Bain Friday Night Reading Series out. I want to welcome Christopher Woods, David B. Coe, Jody Lynn Nye, and Les Johnson to the podcast. Hello, folks. Hi. 
How are hey, you? Tony. Glad to be here. Christopher Woods, teller of tales, writer of fiction, and professional liar, is the author of nine novels and a multitude of short stories. He's been writing for six years and with novels in the Soul Guard series, the Fallen World series, and the Four Horsemen universe. He feels he's found his calling. As a carpenter of 30 years, he spends his time building, whether it be homes or worlds. David B. Coe is the author of many fantasy and contemporary fantasy novels and stories. He is the winner of the William L. Crawford Award for the Best First Fantasy Series awarded at the International Conference on the Fantastic for Children of Amarid and the Outlanders, the first two novels in the Lon Tobin Chronicles. His series, Winds of the Forelands, begins with Rules of Ascension and continues with Seeds of Betrayal, Bonds of Vengeance, Shapers of Darkness, and Weavers of War. His contemporary fantasy series, The Case Files of Justin Fearson, begins with Spellblind from Bane Books. Jody Lynn Nye lists her main career activity as spoiling cats. She lives near Atlanta with three feline overlords and her husband, author and manager, Bill Fawcett. She has published more than 50 books, including collaborations with Anne McCaffrey and Robert Asprin and over 165 short stories. Her latest books are Rhythm of the Imperium from Bain, Moon Tracks with Travis S. Taylor from Bain, Myth Fits from Ace, and Once More with Feeling, a short book on revising manuscripts, out from Wordfire. She teaches the annual Dragon Con two-day writer's workshop every Labor Day weekend in Atlanta, Georgia, and is a judge for the Writers of the Future contest. She attended Chattacon some years ago as a special guest, and LibertyCon is literary G-O-H, and has come to LibertyCon most of the years since. She has the fun of walking around the London World Science Fiction Convention with Uncle Timmy and a couple of his friends and getting to hear his philosophy of con running. We're going to be talking a lot more about Uncle Timmy soon. She especially appreciated his sense of humor and love of family, as well as the excellent conventions he helped run. Les Johnson is a husband, father, physicist, author, and NASA technologist. He works at the NASA Marshall Space Flight Center, where he serves as the lead for NASA's two interplanetary solar sail missions, near-Earth asteroid scout, and solar cruiser. His books include Mission to Methany, Rescue Mode with Ben Bova, and Graphene, the super-strong, super-thin, and super-versatile material that will revolutionize the world, which is a science book, and Les has written other science books. Les has been attending science fiction conventions since he was in high school and credits the genre for being one of the inspirations that led him to pursue a career in physics. And any opinions expressed by Les on the podcast, or of course his own, and don't reflect those of NASA or the U.S. government or anyone else but Les Johnson. Out now at booksellers everywhere is Give Me Liberty Con, edited by Christopher Woods and TKF Weiskopf, a.k.a. Tony Weiskopf, a.k.a. My Boss. This uh, is a short story anthology with stories by David Weber, David Drake, Larry Correa, Sarah A. Hoyt, Charles E. Gannon, David Coe, who we got here, Jody Lynn Nye, Chris Kennedy, John Hartness, Bill Fawcett, Christopher Woods, Les Johnson, Mike Massa, Casey Ezel, and Christopher Smith, Timothy Zahn, and Gray Reinhardt. Hey, what a lineup this is. And all of these people are attendees and um, are associated strongly with this um, amazing con in Chattanooga called Liberty Con. 
and uh, which was founded by a man named uh, Richard Bolgio, Uncle Timmy, as he is called. I'm not even going to begin to try to explain uh, the concept for the anthology because it's a bit complicated and very cool. So, um, Chris, could you, um, since you're one of the editors, can you tell us a little bit about this? And then the others can uh, join in at any point. Sure. It uh, it actually came from the second Liberty Con I went to, because I'm fairly new to Liberty Con. The second Liberty Con we went to, me and my wife left, and as we were driving up the road, we were like, geez, we have got to do something for these people because they are awesome. And uh, we kicked ideas around about making coins or giving away books or, you know, numerous things and and never really settled on anything until uh, I was talking to uh, Johnny Minion, which most uh, most of you guys probably know him. Mm Mm-hmm. He's a uh, he's a fixture at Liberty Con. We were we were at a convention and and he said uh, while we're at the Christmas party for Liberty Con maybe you should uh, you know have a drawing for a Tuckerization. And I was like ooh ooh maybe we could kill everybody. So here <laughs> <laughs> and he 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 was like okay now that sounds fun. So I went to Brandy and asked her about it, and uh, she said uh, it would be a wonderful idea. And then I went and I talked to Timmy, and I just saw this big old grin on his face, so I knew that was a that was a go. <laughs> and then uh, it was just a little bit later. I got to meet Timmy one more time. I went to his house, and he showed me all of the the books in his uh, library that were all signed, which was awesome. And then it wasn't two weeks after that that he was gone. Mm-hmm. And uh, this thing turned into something a lot more than just a thank you to Liberty Con. It turned into a memoriam for uh, for Timmy Bolgio. And uh, it, the authors who participated in this were fantastic. There was not – there was every story in there was awesome. They were great. Well, Jody, since you have been engaged with LibertyCon for many years, maybe you can explain a few of these words. What is what is LibertyCon? Who is Uncle Timmy? Um, what is Tuckerization? Maybe to go into some of these uh, basic details for us. Let's start with LibertyCon. That LibertyCon was uh, was Uncle Timmy's pride and joy, and he he himself chaired it and ran it for many years. Then in, in the last few years, he turned over the chairmanship to his daughter, Brandy, Brandy Spraker, uh, and it has a very devoted following. It's a very small convention, um, but it's a, it's a devoted group. They're, everybody comes back year after year because it's like going to a family reunion, but one you want to go to. People have such a good time that, that they're, they wait avidly for the next time that they can jump in and buy a membership. In fact, Matt Fanny, who frequently runs the uh, membership drive, says uh, he, he counts down every year and it takes fewer and fewer minutes, and I mean minutes, for the membership to sell out. It's that quick. Now, Tuckerization... Yeah, it, was, it was 29 this year. 
It was twenty nine. It's going to be it's going to be smaller next year, of course. Uh, when we can when we can finally have it. Tuckerizations are named for someone who was in Golden Age fandom, a man named Wilson Bob Tucker, who put his friends into his stories. And sometimes they knew, and sometimes they found out as a surprise when the story was published. And it it has come to become a thing in in uh, science fiction and fantasy and sometimes romance, because I've I've heard of my romance writers friends uh, doing this, that we put our friends in uh, if we need a character. Sometimes we we pick somebody that we know. Sometimes we do it out of revenge, and very often we sell them for charity. I don't I never get a penny for it, but I get a lot of satisfaction out of. Uh, seeing seeing the bidding go up for a particular story and having people say, "Yeah, I get to be in this story, this book." <laughs> so it's uh, it's become a tradition. This is the first time that I think that there's been this number of people tuckerized all in one book. So every story in this book has tuckerization. That is each of the authors put in the names of a bunch of people who have over the years worked with Liberty Con, the especially dedicated volunteers there, and they work them into their stories. And a lot of these people are people that the authors personally knew because all the authors were attendees and guests there over the years as well. As we can see, this is a very special science fiction convention. And Uncle Timmy was a very special convention organizer. That's the reason we are having this anthology, right? Yeah, I got a list of 10 so, people. I think everybody did. Les, you knew Uncle Timmy, maybe the longest of some of the folks here. Well, I guess David knew him a long time as well. Um, his name was Richard T. Bolgio. He was a very special person on many levels. Um, and, and part of the indication of this is that... Um, Part of the profits of this book will go to a scholarship for funding a young scientist to come and uh, visit your the conference you founded, the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, which is a great science conference that, that several of us have been to as well. And an, another part of the profits will go toward a scholarship at LibertyCon itself, um, or rather to go to a charity that they wish to... Uh, that the uh, organizers want to donate to. So tell us about Uncle Timmy and, and how you came to know him. T Timmy was a, uh, a nuclear engineer for the Tennessee Valley Authority for all of his career and then a consultant after that was through and a science fiction fan. And, and you put an engineer or scientist combined with a science fiction fan and you get somebody who's rapidly enthusiastic about the future and technology and what's possible and I think Timmy kind of envisioned LibertyCon to be a gathering of not just the science fiction writers, but also the people who were in the sciences and engineering and people who were fans of all that and futurists. And he just had a contagious personality of optimism about the future and about everybody around him. I mean, Timmy was just an incredibly accepting person went out of his way to make everybody feel like they were his best friend. And I think he honestly thought they were. I don't think there was anything other than genuineness in that. Timmy was an instant friend to just about anybody you could meet and uh, would, would, would probably have dropped almost everything to help almost everybody in the Liberty Con family. Um, yeah. 
that what's what's really yep. special for me about this whole thing is the fact that Bain decided to to honor Timmy with the Richard Bolgio scholarship, which, as you mentioned, is something that's administered through this uh, nonprofit group, the Tennessee Valley Interstellar Workshop, which Timmy participated in, uh, has, has attended many of our of our meetings. And uh, this scholarship is to go to undergraduates who are in the southeast, mostly Tennessee Valley, who are up and coming college students. And uh, it really uh, is fitting to honor Timmy in that way because he really, really, really liked to reach out to young people at the con to get them excited about the future and what we can what we can do with it. I'd like to get everyone else's impressions of Uncle Timmy and Liberty Con. David, uh, David Bico, would you like to uh, tell us a little bit about your own? Yeah, I attended my first Liberty Con in the summer of 1997. Um, my first book had just come out, and Timmy welcomed me to the con um, as if he had known me all his life, as if I was a, you know, 10-time New York Times bestseller. He made me feel welcome. He made me feel special. He just, you know, introduced me to the whole family and, and brought me in. But he also made it very clear to me, and I say this in my, uh, in my bio or in, the, in the anthology, he, he, said, he said, you know, we're so glad to have you and everything, but I'm not going to read your epic fantasy because I hate epic fantasy. <laughs> he, said, he said, the first time you write something that isn't epic fantasy, I'm going to read it and I'm going to love it, but I'm not going to read your epic fantasy. And he was true to his word. I mean, I wrote, I wrote like 11 epic fantasies, and then I came out with my first um, historical fantasy, and he was all over that. He was, oh, I read it. I loved it. That was great. I'm so good. And, you know, I did an urban fantasy. He loved that. But he never read the epic fantasy. And he used to give me a hard time about it. And the other thing he used to do, because Timmy – I'm I'm a I'm a liberal, I'm a progressive, and Timmy was was not, and we used to give each other a hard time about politics every time I showed up at Liberty Con. Um, I've been to I've easily twenty Liberty Cons at this point. Um, I've been a special guest. I've been a guest of honor. It is it's my hometown con, you know, and uh, it's. It's Brandy does a great job, and it will always be a wonderful convention. But without Timmy, it's you know it's just it's just a little bit emptier without Timmy. Well, Chris, how did you decide uh, who was going to get Tuckerized, and how did you distribute the list? And uh, tell us a little bit more about the process of making the book. <laughs> they they gave me this enormous list of names. And I tried not to put uh, family members in the same one and just went down and just picked out names and sent them to the authors. And I figured they would, <laughs> they would do the rest. And uh, if the only one that actually got a family was uh, David Weber because he had told me something that he was planning on doing a, a thing about the tree cats. So I was like, hey, would you be interested in like a whole family of people? You know, so since you uh, since you're on, you know, the place I can't even remember which one it is, Sphinx maybe, the world where the tree cats are. So he did he did a whole family of people, but most everybody got the just random names that I just drew out of a hat basically and sent to them. Well, tell us about your own experience uh, writing your short story, The Bastion, and which is included in the anthology. It's a really great story. <laughs> 
that's the I kind of cheated on that one because I took Brandy and Timmy. <laughs> but uh, I the the world I've got is called the Fallen World, and it takes place 20 years after the corporate the corporations had taken over and nuked each other. So I've got this uh, this city that is run by warlords and. My main character used to be an agent, which is a super soldier back in the old days. They used imprint technology to put in, you know, put a, if they needed a soldier, they put a soldier in the body. If they needed a spy, they put a spy in, whatever. He happened to be in the machine when the bombs fell and it dropped the whole database in his head. So he's got all these multiple personalities. And he just so happens to have this personality of a guy named Timmy Bolgio, who <laughs> <laughs> they run into this place called the Bastion, and they're being a it's a it's called the Bastion of Literacy. They've gone all over this city over the last twenty years, and they've collected all the books because they know that knowledge is is important. And uh, if you lose the knowledge, I mean, you got to relearn everything. And they're being uh, besieged by a group of savage, book-burning bibliophobes. So Cade, my character, and he shows up to help, and automatically one of his personalities recognizes the leader of the Bastion of Literacy, and it's Brandy Bolgio. So he lets Timmy out to basically run the show for for the you know the battle and everything and reconnect with his daughter yeah. that he'd lost 20 years ago and well, it was uh, it was very really uh, it's it's cool because you do a big build up to this this moment i mean it's not immediately that we get the uh, the the sweet emotion um you have a a real stone cold killer that's got a lot of um personalities within him um yeah, who is a devastatingly effective killer as well because he's just he can just call up a personality for whatever situation he's in, right? Um, and there's this moment uh, when it's like uh, it's like a big crowd and and somebody's shuffling up from the rear within him. And uh, to talk about that a little bit, um, it did you feel like that? Um, you were maybe you didn't feel like you were taking liberty in any way with Brandy and her father's relationship, right? I mean, it's a it's fictional characters here, but there is something that you um, that that feel felt like it was it was reflective of reality. Is that the case? Well, I wanted I wanted I did that for Brandy. You know, that was my whole purpose behind that was that so that Brandy would know. Or that you know she would think about the fact that Timmy's always looking over her now. He's a, he's always there. You know it's it's he's not completely gone. And in this story, when uh, when Cade sees Brandy, he recognizes her and he he hears this in the back of his mind saying, "Hey, hey!" And it says Brandy, and so he knew the name. But this uh, this consciousness that was so far down inside that he'd never really dealt with him before but he automatically lets him come forward to uh because he realizes it's his daughter he has these memories of 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 brandy as a child as a teenager as an adult so it 
I just I did it for because I thought I thought Brandy would appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Well, it's a very it's a really touching story, and it, it's kind of uh, unexpected because it starts out as a very much a thriller um, kind of piece. Um, well, let's. I happen to uh, now I've worked with David uh, on the uh, Spellblind series. That is what the it's not called Spellblind series. It's called uh, the Cape right the Justice Files. Pearson series. Justice Fearson, yeah, um, and uh, I, I love this character, um, and I'm so glad to see him back. Um, so, what's the what what is a wear mist, and why? How did he end up in Chattanooga? It's an Arizona wear mist in Chat in Chattanooga. Well, so a wear mist is a uh, he's basically he's a he's a sorcerer. He he can cast spells and such, but. Um, on the full moon and the day before and after the full moon, each night as the moon comes up, he goes temporarily insane. And over the long haul, these moon phasings, as they're called, are going to cost him his, his sanity on a permanent basis. And so that's always lurking in the back of his mind. His father is, is the same way and has already lost his mind. And so there's a lot of stuff with mental health in the series. But they're also... They're detective novels. My my Wearmist lead character is a detective who works out of Phoenix, Arizona. Um, and so in this case, since I was writing about um, or I was writing for the anthology, I thought, well, why not instead of having the, the story set in Phoenix, why not have him called out to Chattanooga to solve a mystery here? Um, and so that was really fun. Um, I had a there's a scene that takes place on Fraser Avenue. Um, he comes into the into Level Field, and so I'm writing about the airport there. And uh, his girlfriend has told him to bring her back a bottle of Gentleman Jack and a box of Moon Pies. And it was just, <laughs> you know, I was just looking looking for ways to to because I'm a transplant. I I didn't grow up here. I've I've lived in the South now for close to 30 years. Um, but you know, moving here was a little bit of a transition, and so I wanted to portray the city through the eyes of a stranger rather than either setting it someplace else or, or doing something with, uh, with a point-of-view character who was native to Chattanooga. So that was a fun thing. And then I, I built a, uh, a mystery. I had those eight names to play with, and one of them was a uh, colonel, so obviously a military guy. And, and of course, um, Liberty Con attracts a lot of uh, ex-military and current military and Bain Books um, is so uh, well disposed to its its veteran readers and its enlisted readers, and so being able to play with a with a um, an army colonel was fun as well, especially because I was able to make him my villain, and I really enjoyed I really enjoyed that. So <laughs> so uh, Colonel Fotovich is in for is in for quite a treat when he reads his story. <laughs> Yeah, liberal. Yeah. So, um, so justice is. Um... What's fun about justice in your books and in the story is that he he's not the most powerful. He's he's smart and he figures out ways around things. Um, tell us a little bit about how the magic works because it's really cool the system you've worked out for this this detective series. It's a world where everyone knows they exist, right? It's... Right. So it's it's not quite secret magic or hidden magic it's it's known 
But again, because there is this stigma of mental health issues attached to the magic, it's kind of the, the magic is treated much the way mental health issues are treated in our society, which is people know they're there, but they do their best to kind of ignore them and shunt them to the side. And that's kind of how the magic is treated as well. Um, but the magic comes down to it, it's almost it's almost personalized. Everybody has their own way of casting spells and drawing upon their power, and yet there are very strict rules as to what the magic can do and how it operates and and uh, what sorts of things it can't do and can't what problems it can't fix. Um, and as you say, Justice Fierson, Jay Fierson, he's not the strongest. Um, but he's smart and savvy, and that's something that I try to do with all the magic and all the books I write, which is I, I don't want magic being the answer. Magic gets my heroes to a point, but in the end, magic is going to fail them, and they're going to have to solve the problem through human qualities, normal human qualities that we think of in our own world, resourcefulness, cleverness, courage, um, endurance, that sort of thing. Uh, and so Jay is forced to do that. And, and in this case, he comes to a place and he's not well received and he kind of has to win over um, some of the locals in order to defeat a power that's much stronger than he is. And then he has to outsmart that, that other power. So it's, it's, it's fun stuff. I love writing the detectives stories um and uh and as you say i i love these characters so it was really nice to be able to get back into them and and write a little bit more about them yeah so anyway it's 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 fun i i've missed i've missed these books so uh so i was glad to do it and of course i got the title from uh an american werewolf in london um an arizona Weirmist in chattanooga so that was that was the other thing i did yeah, well, it's a super cool story. Um, Jody, Lynn, Nye, um, you did a meta story. Um, you really went meta with this one. Um, it's uh, it's it's how uh, so it's a it's like this conspiracy within. Explain what's going on here without giving everything away, of course. <laughs> I hate to give it away, but I, I'm having a lot of fun. I had so much fun because I involved not only the ten people on my list, and I got everybody in. But quite a number of my fellow pros and convention organizers and spouses of persons like that. So, oh, and, and a past guest of honor, uh, Ben Bova, I was told, was one of the favorite guests. So I needed, I needed guest of honor for my version of Liberty Con. So he, uh, he, got, he got involved in it, whether or not he kind of intended to. And I hope, please, please, Dr. Bova, forgive me. It, it is a compliment, <laughs> honest. Uh, but to to present the convention at the kind of welcoming place that it is, but I also incre uh, included an event uh, that I sort of wished had actually happened. Back when I used to go to Gen Con in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at the old Mecca Center, one year we heard that Geraldo Rivera was going to show up, and he was going to do an expose on this horrible thing back when they were still calling D&D &D devil worship and all of the other stuff. And some of us got to talking, and we were going to lure him up on the roof, telling him that there was going to be a satanic ritual, and then lock him out there. 
<laughs> but I mean, the fire doors, you know, they they don't open from the outside. <laughs> so I uh, I needed I needed a a brief time. Uh, th- this is part of the story. I needed a brief time when uh, there there are agents in the house. The agency has come calling, and this has happened before. So the the people at LibertyCon are prepared, but they still need to have their special meeting because they are like like in many of the other stories, they're an epicenter for something bigger than you can just see on the surface. Let's, let's, let's call it that. So they, they need time for their special meeting, and they distract the, the three agents in various different ways. But I got, to, I got to present people that I know, people that I love, and things that actually happened at the convention through the eyes of people who have no idea what fandom really is. They they don't get it. They're they're bewildered. I remember my very first convention it was Worldcon 1980, and there were 6,000 people there, and I had no idea what they were doing. Well, my three agents have no idea what they're doing, but it looks cool, and it looks like they're all having a lot of fun. And one by one, the barriers begin to fall. So I got to work in Uncle Timmy and Brandy and various other people that I know, and I hope uh, I hope they enjoy their placement in the story. Because I hope that I made the people I included feel special. Why do you think there, I mean, there is this, um, and this is a story of a, of a conspiracy, that fandom is a sort of conspiracy of, for good. Um, so many people in fandom sort of see it that way. Um, and, and, and if it's metaphorically that way to them, even if in yours it's like literally that way. <laughs> but uh, what... Uh, what what is it about fandom and and maybe the 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 essence of it that Liberty Con seems to extract and I mean bringing people like David Coe and you and and uh, and you know like crazy crazy right wingers like Les Johnson together <laughs> so, I'm joking anyway wait a minute. <laughs> He's, he's just being naughty, but and on the whole, I think yeah. In a way, it is a, it is a conspiracy because it is a society outside of a society. I I belong to the SCA Society for Creative Anachronism for years, and for a very long time, the FBI did think of us as a subversive organization. And I'm sure that somewhere there's an FBI file on me and everybody else in my shire. But on the whole, it's a place for people like us to get together and talk about things that we love without being called nerd or being um, subject to swirlies or having our books thrown down the stairs. People who actually like what they're doing and are, in fact, the smartest kids on their own various blocks getting together and namaste, the, the smart person in me recognizes the smart person in you, and we celebrate that. And that's that's actually daunting to a lot of people who are frightened by intellectualism. But we don't we don't shove that down anybody's throat. We're just there to have fun and enjoy the things we love. So maybe it is a conspiracy of a kind. How do you how do you join? Say that there are people that you you are willing to listen to things, look at things, not be judgmental. Uh, had, and be willing to have fun at something that perhaps you never experienced before. Well, where where else can a carpenter sit beside a nuclear scientist 
and talk about books that they've written. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> we've got lawyers. Yeah. We've got computer programmers. We have cooks. We have bus drivers. And many of them have written books, and men, and all of them read books. The story that you wrote is called In Liberty, uh, let's see, it is called Liberty for All. That's Jody's contribution to the, to the anthology. Um, Les, uh, Les Johnson wrote uh, a science piece. Uh, it's called Building the Bulgeo. I guess it's science fiction uh, also because uh, we don't have a nuclear rocket yet, although... Well, I debated long and hard when I was asked to be a part of this whether I should write fiction or nonfiction. And, you know, Timmy, with his interest in nuclear power and all the discussions he and I had about how we're going to really settle the solar system, I, I just had to go back to uh, what, what I really believe is the key to opening up the solar system for, for human exploration. I, I'm a physicist. I, I do work for NASA. Um, don't work on, on – I'm not talking about anything I can't talk about, right? But I, I know a little bit about propulsion and such. And – it was always a topic Timmy wanted to talk to me about. Les, what's the latest that's going on with nuclear rockets? Are we finally going to build those nuclear rockets? And he, he would hearken back to the, to the ideas that everyone thought a nuclear rocket would be back in the 50s, and we would get off on that. So I, I just thought I would call the first crude, not C-R-U-D-E, but C-R-E-W-E-D, uh, nuclear-powered ship that we would use to go to Mars and, and name it after Timmy, call it the Bolgeo. So I just describe a little bit about what a nuclear rocket is, how it works, and uh, how we came to have the nuclear power to, to drive it. And it's really to honor Timmy's vision about that. I mean, heck, you know, everybody likes a data dump, right? And where else do you get to talk about heating hydrogen that's 423 degrees below zero up to about 4,000 degrees in two seconds? and dumping 300,000 pounds of it through a 25-foot rocket nozzle. I mean, hey, that's the stuff of which gee whiz is made, right? But that's, right. that's what we're really going to have to do someday if we're going to go to Mars, I think. We're going to have mm -hmm. to have a rocket like that. And So wh why not? Why not take what Timmy, you know, spent his life working on in nuclear power and use that for what he dreamed of, space exploration? So that, that's why I wrote this piece. Well, what is, um, there's two sort of, there's two, different aspects of nuclear rocket and maybe get into the science just a little bit if you would the using of the propulsion of the propellant um being uh being heated up and then there's the electrical uh aspect of it which i'm not making any sense maybe you could clarify <laughs> sure well as in all good uh, stories, even in reality, th there are competing approaches technologically to how you want to use nuclear power for propulsion. And the, 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 the nearer-term uh, approach that, that is more of a rocket is nuclear thermal propulsion. And basically what you do there is in, instead of having the hot gas that comes out of the rocket nozzle be generated from chemical energy, which is what we do on chemical rockets today, you, you get a lot more push, a lot more energy into your exhaust, which gives you more efficient rocket propulsion if you use uh, fissioning uranium, like in a nuclear power plant, to superheat the propellant. And so, it, 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 you know, from the outside, it looks just like any other rocket. You have a hot gas coming out of, as exhaust, and you're pushing your ship the other direction, right? It's just a lot more efficient than chemical propulsion. Um, just to give you an example, 
if you're going to send a, a, a vehicle to Mars, you use half the propellant. And considering that you have to launch tons and tons of propellant, it gets to be a pretty significant savings on launch costs and everything else to use that. The, 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 the competition is something called nuclear electric propulsion. And that community, what they want to do is they want to take a small reactor and do what you do in a power plant on Earth and generate electrical power. And then you use that electrical power to uh, strip an electron off of a heavier atom like a xenon or a, a, a krypton atom. And you, you accelerate that across an electric field, positive voltage, get it going to a really high speed, sort of like in the, the same thing that accelerates the protons on the super collider that you hear about in, in Europe, uh, the, the, the big uh, particle physics uh, facility at CERN. And, and so you accelerate these ions out the back of the rocket, and that'll give it the push. Now, the difference is that doesn't have the high thrust. You, you'll just see like this blue glow, which is kind of science fictional in and of itself, right? If you watch almost every science fiction movie, all the rockets are blue glow. I have to figure out why it's always blue. Um, but that'll give you your thrust. But it's a lot more efficient, but it's not, uh, it's not as much thrust. And so you have to have really, really big reactors and generate a lot of electrical power, whereas a nuclear thermal rocket, you can get pretty good efficiency and not be quite as ambitious in how big the reactor is. So there are, in my opinion, we'll probably fly a nuclear thermal rocket first to get used to flying nuclear systems. And then we'll build up and have these uh, better performing nuclear electric systems for after that. So it's going to kind of an evolutionary approach. Hmm. Well, what are the um, what are the are there downsides and why don't we have them now? And uh, is is there um, possibility of an accident that sort of thing? Well. It, it, okay, let, let me address the accident thing first. I don't think anyone's talking about using a nuclear rocket for launching off the Earth. This is the kind of thing that you would use chemical rockets to get off the ground, and you would assemble it in orbit, and you would start it up and send it away from the Earth, never really to return and land on the surface. It would only be used for going between the planets, and then when you come home, it wouldn't land. Uh, the, the nuclear engine and the, the spacecraft would either go into a really high orbit to be used again, or the crew would, would, would jump off on some kind of capsule or vehicle where they would land back on Earth and the nuclear rocket goes off never to be seen again. Internal, so there internal is no shuttle risk. of some kind? Yeah, or a capsule, or they might do a rendezvous with a space station and put the, put the rocket that has the, the reactor, which would be dangerous, in an orbit that it would never ever return to Earth. It would be always going, you know, out in deep space somewhere. So there's really not a safety issue. And you can launch the fuel for these reactors, uh, believe it or not, before you start the nuclear reaction and get all the radioactive, radioactive byproducts, you could put the fuel on your dining room table and have Thanksgiving dinner and not exceed OSHA safety issues for radiation. Now, you wouldn't want to butter your toast with it, <laughs> um, but, but, you know, just having it in the room with you, it's no big deal. It's only after you put it in the right geometry at the right time to get the nuclear reaction started that you get the radioactive byproducts that can become dangerous. 
And, and in, in the scenarios that I think we'll eventually use, you don't ever do that until you're in space and you're well away from the biosphere and you're not a risk to people on the ground. So I think that can be done really, really safely. So you really think that this is the way that we're going to have to go to go to Mars? Um, I think you can do it chemically, but, but I think it's a dead end. Um, it'll, we're going to find that you have to launch so much fuel and put together so many segments of, of chemical systems that you can do some missions that way. And I think uh, SpaceX and any country or group of countries, whether it's the U.S. or others that want to go, you could do it chemically. It's certainly physically possible. It's, it's big and complicated. But if you're going to have a sustained presence where you want to go back and forth a lot, you want to go as efficiently and as reusably as you can. And really, that makes nuclear the way to go. It, it really just, just does. Um, it, it's, just, it, it's just so much more efficient. You don't have to launch as much from the ground, and these systems are inherently reusable. Cool. Cool. Well, another thing that uh, is great about Les Johnson Science Pieces is that you uh, you, you did a really beautiful uh, sort of uh, description of how heavy elements come to be from the first uh, from the first stars. Yeah, I, I did that because uh, you know we we take for granted the world around us and we kind of assume everything's always there. And I was so inspired by Carl Sagan's Cosmos series. Um, which I saw, didn't see when it was first on. I, I was, I'm at the tail end of the baby boom, so I, I kind of missed it there, but I watched it in rerun shortly after it was all over on TV. And he talks about how we're made of star stuff and describes how the stars fuse hydrogen into helium and then hydrogen and helium fuse into heavier elements. And in big, heavy stars, they all start fusing together to form most of the elements on the periodic table up until you get to uh, uh, the, some of the heavier elements and then some stars explode, and in that explosion, that's where you get other super heavy elements. And it, it, it's just a, it's just such an incredible story of how events billions of years ago came come together with our understanding of nature and engineering and science to give us the capability on this little rock in the outer suburbs of the solar of the of the galaxy on this obscure little planet, the idea that we can take this stuff that was formed in a star four and a half billion years ago and put it together in such a way that we can go to Mars and explore another planet. Um, it's just an incredible story. And so inspiring. it's not fiction. <laughs> yeah. So I just, you know, I, to tell you how weird I am, I just gave myself goosebumps, okay? I'm, I'm totally weird. I get excited about this stuff, so. Oh, I, I love it. I wish I could have heard your discussion. <laughs> <laughs> Still into it after all these years of conceptualizing and building solar cells and stuff for for NASA and everything. So um, maybe we could uh, we could sum up with anything that I haven't uh, you know that that hasn't come up yet. Um, any uh, any final thoughts from from folks uh, on LibertyCon and and Timothy Bolgio and uh, and the anthology? LibertyCon is not happening this year which is uh, sad, although there is sort of an online one, I think. Um, I'm sure it's going to be back strong next year. Um, by the way, I also want to mention that the, the anthology has stories by David Weber, David Drake, Larry Correa, Sarah Hoyt, 
uh, Chuck Gannon, uh, as well as uh, a bunch of others. Uh, Bill Fawcett, Jody's husband. Uh, who else? Mike Massa, Casey Zell. Uh, Tim Zahn has one. Um, anyway, uh, any any final uh, final thoughts or uh, anything else we want to say about uh, about all this? Well, I think well, it's, I think it's a ton of fun, Chris. and I was really pleased that Chris uh, included us in it. Well, I'm glad you guys joined me with it. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say the same. I was going to thank Chris for for involving us and for coming up with the idea for this. I think it's great, and I I love the idea that the proceeds from the book are, uh, are, are helping some people out. Also, I don't know if we mentioned it or not, half of the proceeds from the book go to LibertyCon itself for its, uh, for the, its charity of choice. The other half is for the scholarship. I know we mentioned the scholarship, mm-hmm. but the, uh, I don't think we mentioned that the other half was uh, LibertyCon's to use on its own charity thing. The book is Give Me Liberty Con, edited by Christopher Woods and TKF Weiskopf. So check that out. Um, folks, thank you so much for, um, for, for talking to us about Uncle Timmy and Liberty Con. Oh, thanks, thanks for having us. Thanks for a good discussion. Here is another entry in David Weber's Honor Harrington series masterpiece, Uncompromising Honor. Honor keeps her promise. The Solarian League. For hundreds of years they have borne the banner of human civilization. But the bureaucratic mandarins who rule today's League are corrupt and looking for scapegoats. They've decided the upstart Star Kingdom of Manticore must be annihilated. Uncompromising courage. Honor Harrington has worn the Star Kingdom's uniform for half a century. Very few. No war the way Honor Harrington does. So far, hers has been a voice of caution. But now the Mandarins have committed atrocities such as the galaxy has not known in a thousand years. They have finally killed too many of the people Honor Harrington loves. Uncompromising vengeance. Now Honor Harrington is coming for the Solarian League, and hell is riding in her wake. And now, David Weber's Uncompromising Honor. Commander Tierlock Omot wore two hats as the CO of HMS Aubusier and the commanding officer of Destroyer Division 94.2. Like HMS Sopo and all DesDiv 94.2's other units, Aubusier was a Culverin-class destroyer. The Culverins had been bleeding-edge technology when they were introduced in 1899 P.D., but that had been 23 T years ago, before anyone outside a few ultra-classified research programs had ever heard of anything called a multi-drive missile. They remained capable platforms against anyone who didn't have MDMs or DDMs of his own, but they were thoroughly obsolete against modern weapons. That meant Lessim could dispense with them more readily than with any of his newer units. They'd also been built for larger crews than the bigger, more modern Rolands, which gave them the redundant life support to take the Manticoran traffic control specialists off the PTC platform. While George is talking to Omot, Tom, Lessim continued, turning back to Wozniak, tell Captain Aberlane to begin deploying an enabling pod as per pattern able. Yes, sir. The operations officer didn't sound very surprised by the order. 
Harriet Amberlein commanded David K. Brown, most of whose capacious cargo pods were stuffed with Mark 16s. One of the FSV's cargo modules was loaded with Mark 23 MDMs, which offered twice the Mark 16's powered envelope. But Mark 23s were in short supply, not to be wasted where the smaller Mark 16 would do the job. More to the point, the Mark 23's greater range would offer no real advantage in the sort of engagement Lessim saw coming. Pattern Able deployed only Mark 16 pods, and he considered sending David K. Brown, known as Brownie by her crew, despite the fact that that name officially belonged to a Hydra-class SELAC, back to a J after the Culverins as soon as Amberlene completed the Able deployment. She was a valuable unit, although the service train units with Rice and a J carried many times the number of pods she did. Despite her size, however, she could easily out-accelerate anything in the Solarian inventory, and she represented his missile pod piggy bank. And I may need to dip into that piggy bank pretty damn soon, he thought grimly. A lot's going to depend on what these people decide to do. CIC makes it 10 or 12 cruisers, four destroyers, and what could be a dreadnought, ma'am, Rear Admiral Bartholu Rosiak reported. A dreadnought? Admiral Jane Isotolo, CO Task Force 1027, Solarian League Navy, repeated with a raised eyebrow. No first-line Navy had used dreadnoughts in 20T years. ONI said both the Mantis and the Havenites had used them early in their wars, but they'd all been retired long since. Yes, ma'am, Rear Admiral Lamazana, TF-1027's intelligence officer said before Rosia could reply. Isotalo transferred her raised eyebrow to Lamazana, and the intel officer shrugged. CIC isn't saying that's necessarily what it is, ma'am, she said, but they're calling its mass around three million tons, which is too big for even one of the Mantis battlecruisers. It's too big even for a battleship, for that matter, but way too small for an ST. It could be some kind of collier or supply vessel. In fact, it probably is, but it's showing military-grade impellers. Until we know more, I think we have to assume it's a warship. Isotalo considered that for a moment, then nodded. Unlike her, Lamazana was frontier fleet. Under normal conditions, that might have left Isotalo less impressed by her caveat. Little though the Admiral cared to admit it, though, Frontier Fleet had demonstrated a better track record than Battlefleet when it came to acknowledging the threat of Manticore's technological advantages. Not that any of us have precisely covered ourselves with glory, she thought. Still, Lamazana was smart, and she'd invested a lot of effort in acquiring the best insight into Manti capabilities she could, even before TF-1027 had been tapped for Operation Buccaneer and sent off to burn Ajay's orbital infrastructure to the ground. What do you think they're doing here, Meline? Isotalo asked now. More of this wormhole seizure strategy of theirs? Most likely, ma'am, Lamazana nodded. I can't think of another reason for them to be swanning around three or four hundred light years from Manticore or Beowulf. They haven't had time yet to learn about Buccaneer and start deploying interception forces. And if that's what these people were doing, I'd expect them to be in greater strength than this. Just our luck to run into them here, Rear Admiral Kimo Romales, Isotalo's chief of staff, observed with a sour expression. Like Lamazana, Romales was frontier fleet, not battle fleet, and he'd been with Isotalo for less than three T months. 
In fact, he'd been assigned over her protest when they took Rear Admiral Terso Frederick away from her. Frederick had been her chief of staff for the better part of three T years, but Winston Kingsford had made a point of breaking up established command relationships and of cross-assigning frontier fleet and battle fleet officers ever since he'd replaced Rajampet Rajani as chief of naval operations. The new policy had infuriated Isatalo when it was initiated, and she'd scarcely been alone in that. She told herself it wasn't Ramallis's fault. And given the sheer depth of the crap in which the SLN had found itself since Joseph Bing's new Tuscan stupidity, the last thing anyone could afford was for her to create any avoidable friction with her new chief of staff. None of which had made her happy to see him aboard SLNS Fudroyant, her battlecruiser flagship. It had helped that, also like Lamazana, Ramallis was smart and tactful. That wasn't enough to endear him to his battle fleet fellows, but it helped, and he and Isotalo had established a firm mutual respect. It's inconvenient, Kimo, she acknowledged now. But I suggest we look upon it as an opportunity, not a liability. Ramallis cocked his head at her, and she showed her teeth briefly. I still don't know that I accept all the horror stories Maylene and Bart have been telling us about Manti missile ranges, she went on, twitching her head at Lamazana and Rosiak. But I'm not about to assume they're wrong either. The bastards have sure as hell been kicking the crap out of us with something. But however good their missiles are, we've got a hundred thousand pods worth of improved cataphracts of our own just aboard the Colliers. They can't possibly match the depth of our magazines, and an engagement way out here won't play to their strengths the way one inside the hyperlimit would. The question in my mind is whether they're here on their own or if they're here to hold the door open for someone else. You're thinking they may have staged through Prime en route to Agedamam? Ramallah said. It would make sense, given this wormhole seizure strategy of theirs, Isotalo pointed out. And if that's what's happening, kicking them off the terminus and keeping them off it could play hell with their logistics. It might even force whoever they sent to Agata to fall back on Manticore the long way. She smiled nastily. That'd take their entire force out of action for almost two T months without anyone even firing a shot. Agreed, ma'am, Ramallis nodded. But whatever else happens, they're bound to send a dispatch boat back through the wormhole to Ajay. That's true, Isotalo conceded. I don't know how much good that will do them, though. I expect we'll get a read on that shortly. If they've got enough firepower in a J to give us a fight, they'll either call it forward to support their pickets here, or else they'll fall back through the terminus to concentrate their forces if we come through after them. Which, she added silently, I have no intention whatsoever of doing. The last thing I need is to send the task force through in a wormhole assault against a prepared defense. She thought about that as she contemplated the main plot. The range to the Mantis was just over five light minutes. At this distance, all Fudroyan's onboard sensors could see were the enemy's impeller signatures. The recon platform speeding ahead of TF-1027 would begin providing better data in another 20 minutes or so. But she was unhappily certain the Mantis already had that better data on her own command. O&I had been forced to accept that the Royal Manticoran Navy and its allies truly did have an FTL-COM capability 
with sufficient bandwidth for recon drones over at least intrasystem ranges. It seemed unlikely any Manti commander would allow herself to be caught with her trousers down. So there was undoubtedly a shell of sensor platforms exactly like that spread out around the wormhole. Time to the terminus, Magumo? She asked without looking away from the plot. We're 94 million kilometers out, ma'am, Commodore Magumo Saintula, her astrogator, replied. At current acceleration, we'd make turnover for a zero-zero intercept in 84 minutes. Velocity at turnover would be 18.6 thousand KPS. Thank you, she said. That was the geometry for an end space approach, of course. They could have micro-jumped the 300-odd light seconds through hyper in a fraction of the same time, and if the mantis chose to stand and fight on this side of the wormhole, she suspected there'd be quite a few micro-jumps in the not-too-distant future. Astrogation was more than a little dicey on short-range jumps, though, and she didn't plan on making any of them she didn't have to. Besides, a normal space approach would give Rosiak, Lamazana, and their light-speed-limited drones more time to pry loose additional tactical data. She studied the plot's bland icons for another 15 or 20 seconds, then shrugged. In that case, I imagine we'll be finding out what they have in mind in a couple of hours, she observed. She clasped her hands behind her, turned from the plot, and walked to her command chair. In the meantime, Bart, she continued, let's get the Huskies deployed and open the intervals between the task groups. Put Santini in the van, but I want at least three light seconds between the groups. Rosiak looked at her and she smiled. If they decide to stand and fight, I'm more than willing to help them waste as much ammunition as possible, she said. So at the same time you're passing the order to open the intervals, inform Tsukahara, Bonrepo, and Santini that I want their best astrogators, I don't care whether they're on the flagships or somewhere else in the group, ready to compute the tightest micro jumps they can give me if I ask for them. Rosiak's eyes narrowed. Then he nodded with a smile of his own. Understood, ma'am, he said. That was another entry in the complete audiobook serialization of Uncompromising Honor by David Weber. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to Audible.com and to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz and a steady rain of heavy elements from the explosion of ancient stars, some of which is silver and gold, by the way. Plus thanks, praise, and gratitude for Christopher Woods, David B. Coe, Jody Lynn Nye, and Les Johnson, editor and authors of Give Me Liberty Con. Please join us next time at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy, and keep reaching for the stars.